Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Talk. Michael Michael here. It's Thursday. We're out here at Heritage. And I'm guzzling water because I just got here two minutes ago. I'm always early. I'm like 45 minutes early all the time. Except when you have train delays in New York, which is pretty much <laughs> as constant as anything else is. So yeah, usually I'm, I'm pretty, I get lucky, but today I got on a Q train where somebody was sick in Times Square, and that means that train ain't leaving the station. Have fun and... Hey, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but we're here, and it's funny. February was really warm. February we had this great February in New York. It was like balmy t-shirt weather a whole bunch of the days. It, we had no snow. Speaking of which, I think this is the first winter Chicago had no snow, unless that was broken. Really warm January, February. We've been getting our ass kicked in March. It's bloody cold. It was cold as heck yesterday. I'm on a bicycle when I get around town, and I was just getting blown around on my bike yesterday, like those crazy gusts of wind. They actually move you on a bicycle, which is kind of scary because you're in traffic and you're like, mm, I don't know. I don't want to get moved too much to my right or to my left. That's not a good idea. Got a good show today. I've got two guests. Um, the rundown is this. First guest in just a second will be Bob Holmes. He's the author of a book that just landed on my desk a while back called Flavor, The Science of Our Most Neglected Sense. Well, maybe your most neglected sense. I hope I've kind of lived in the world of flavor my whole life. That's why I love books like this because he really bores down. So we're going to talk to Bob about all the ways we taste, how it works, and how big companies know all about it, <laughs> how it gets manipulated. It's, it's fascinating discussion. I could talk about that forever. That'll be the first part of the show. And then we have Ben Goldfarb, who is a reporter for the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, otherwise known as Fern. He wrote a great piece that was published uh, by Mother Jones in conjunction with Fern on well, it's called The Codfather, and it's about a chap named Carlos Raphael, who was a, on paper, very much the super successful fisherman up in New Bedford. He was landing more cod than anybody, made an absolute fortune, went to sell his company at the age of 64 for $167 million to what turned out to be some undercover IRS guys. Um, so it's the story of the undoing of the Codfather. And it's a good one. If, you, if you're into fishies and species management and ocean biomass and NOAA and all that whole tug of war thing, we're going to bore down deep on that. But first, let's get Bob here. He's been waiting. He's on the phone from where are you in Canada, Bob? I mean, Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton, Alberta, which to Out most in the West. Yeah, I was about to say to most Americans, they're scratching. Their head. Yeah, that's it, it's windy up there, right? Uh, not right now, but 
has been lately. Yeah, I know. I, I had friends that lived in Calgary, so it's kind of like okay. a different part of the world, but still that middle part of Canada, lightly populist. So uh, tell me about this. You're, you're By way of background, um, I'm just curious. You, you have been a... Uh, for New New Science Magazine, you've been a correspondent for about 20-something yeah, years. A, yeah, I've been a reporter for New Scientist Magazine for a long, long time. PhD uh, in, in evolutionary biology from the University of Arizona. Yeah, from the late Pleistocene, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'm not nodding my long head. Long time ago, long time ago. <laughs> uh, passionate home cook and a member of Slow Foods Canada. So there you go. You're, you're on the team here with uh, us at Heritage. What got you, what, what was the, the onus for you to write this book? What was the idea? Uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by flavor, yeah. and I guess it, um, especially the sense of smell, which has been so poorly understood, and, you know, they, people still don't know how we detect odors. Uh, there's not 100% agreement on how that works, and and so there's really fascinating science going on there and you know as you said i love to cook i love to eat and so it seemed natural to you know to spend a couple of years learning about flavor yeah so we're going to get to how you did that in a minute because you really went to some of the places that i think were were perfect choices um like monel in philadelphia and others um mm-hmm. but it's funny so I, so i grew up uh, cooking through junior high and high school. It's kind of how I put myself into college and then dropped out because uh-huh. I wasn't much of an academic, it turned out. And, and I, I wasn't as, nearly as good a jazz guitarist as I wanted to be. Um, all my heroes seemed to be either dead or junkies or both, so I opted for cooking. So I've always been fascinated with the role of flavor and taste and odor and how even like certain smells trigger memories, how, how we use our nose as best we can and, and how it, you know that, this like whole fascinating thing. So I remember when I was a, a young man up at the culinary Institute uh, back in the days, like 19, this is 1979, 80, 81. Um, you know, there's no internet. There's, I don't even know if I don't remember if we had computers. I don't think so. They had a library, that was, which was a quaint idea. It was full of things called books. Um, and I had some free time and I just spent some time in that library. I spent a lot of time in that library just doing research on everything I could and discovered that a wonderful book by the author Briette Savarin, who was kind of a French gourmand. And mm-hmm. the, the translation of the book in English is The Physiology of Taste. So here was a treatise written a couple hundred years ago, you know, without the scientific evidence that obviously we have now on the same idea, this fascination of how do we taste things. So why don't you explain as best you can, because you wrote the book, how do we taste? So talk about like what, I mean, we kind of know the tongue is good for sweet, salt, sour, bitter, and then umami, assuming it exists. And then the nose comes into play in a whole lot of ways. But how do we taste? You tell me what you've learned. Okay. Well, the first thing to note is that the English language lets us down here because we use the word taste, uh, which means sort of all of flavor, but it also means specifically taste, which is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. And that's the stuff that we detect with our tongue. And the rest of flavor largely comes from smell. And, I mean, most people know that, that, you know, when you have a cold, you can't taste your food. Although, in fact, that's Exactly the opposite is true. When you have a cold, all you can do is taste your food. You've lost the sense of smell. Or another excellent exa- uh, demonstration of that is to take one of those fancy flavored jelly beans, hold your nose, and eat the jelly bean. You won't taste anything much. It'll be a little bit sweet and maybe a little bit of sourness to it, and that's it. Until you let go of your nose, and then you can tell all of a sudden, oh, that's banana. 
oh, that's peach, oh, that's mint. Right. So that's, it's very clear that most of uh, what we perceive as flavor comes from the nose. So part, part of you writing this book is this research that you're doing, and I've never, I grew, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, but I left in, uh, when I, well, I never came back, graduated from, I, guess I left in 79, graduated from the CIA in 82, and came straight to Manhattan, where I've been ever since. Um, but, you know, great, love growing up in Philly, great college town, great music scene, not much of a restaurant scene, which is why I never went back in the early 80s, although that has changed. It's really, they've got a really active restaurant scene now. But tell me about this company, Monell Chemical Sensory Center, whatever they're called, because they have come sure. across my radar a million times because they're, they, they really bore down on the study of taste and smell. And then if you could, you could run with that, go to the – you have a point in the book when you do an experiment there um, where you, you, you expose yourself to some kind of mouthwash or chlorhexidine. Yeah. So, so, so talk about that because that's just fa- – sure. but first tell me so, what they do and how, okay. you know, what they do for a living and then what the thing you did that talks about taste with the tongue. Sure. So Monell Chemical Senses Center, I think in the book I call it the, the Vatican City of, yes, you did. of flavor research, except without the architecture. It's, it's, the, it's the place to be for the study of smell and taste and, and related senses. Uh, so they've got the, probably the world's best collection, uh, or maybe even biggest and best collection of researchers on smell and taste and a few other related things. And, you know, so they're, they are the place to be for, for this. So I went there. I, you know, I, just, I just finished telling you how most of flavor is about smell mm-hmm. rather than taste. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be better off without your sense of taste than without your sense of smell. And, in fact, one of the director of the Monell Center said, oh, no, it would be much, much worse to lose taste. None of us have that experience, really, because uh, we can all we can all get rid of our sense of smell by pinching our nose, like with that jelly bean test. But there's nothing nothing we can do to just take away taste quickly for a moment. Uh, but he thought he had a way to do part of that experiment. It turns out there is a mouthwash. Uh, my son used it for a couple of days before he had his wisdom teeth pulled, uh, called chlorhexidine, which turns out to knock out perception of salt. For a little while, and there's also uh, a tea made from some South American plant that knocks out the perception of sweet. And so we decided that we would do this experiment of of trying both of those: get rid of sweet and salty, and then eat lunch. And that's about that's half of you, that's about half of your ability to taste. I mean, now you're left with bitter, right. sour, and umami. Yeah, but salt and sweet are huge. I mean, that's as a chef, I, we know. So go. So so you so you do the mouthwash. You drink some of the tea. You basically sort of semi incapacitated your tongue, and then you proceeded to eat a hamburger cut in in pieces. Yeah. So they they went and got a hamburger from the food truck out right. in front of Monell, and and we ate it, and it was disastrous. It tasted <laughs> like cardboard. Even though even though I could smell everything, it still it was it was horrid. It was just like uh, chewing stuff. Yeah, it was just it could have been styrofoam. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 I think I think he's correct that even though most of the details about flavor come from smell, not taste, taste is probably the more important 
of the two ta- of the two senses and, and, because it's what it's what's telling us basically this is good stuff this is this is full of sugars this is full of proteins in the case of umami uh, you're getting the salt that you need in your diet that that's what taste is doing and smell is just telling us the details of well what exactly was that right and the two do work in tandem and i've always put much more emphasis on smell too because to your point it's very rare i would i would imagine i was it in your book or somewhere else that i read that uh, there are like rare incidences medically where people lose the ability to taste no one's sure why and then some people people in chemotherapy radiation for head and neck cancers right and then they just basically don't want to eat because it's just it's like what's the point if i can't taste the food right yeah okay um so point made, but so if you incapacitate the tongue, which doesn't ha- which is you know you almost had to ha- you had to go out of way to do it, then you realize how important it is. But for the most part, I agree. When you close your nose and try and eat food, and you're just relying on salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami, it really sucks. I, I, I'm I'm a lucky guy. I work out all the time. I eat really well. I almost never get sick. It's probably been five years since the last time I had a cold. But I am miserable when I get a cold because for that reason, I'm a wine guy. I'm a food guy. And for however long it takes for my nose to clear, that usual five to ten day yep. cycle of blowing your nose and you know crying, and I am just miserable because drinking wine, I'm getting nothing from. I'm getting nothing from food, and I'm like, how do people do this? But to, mm-hmm. tell me about what Monell's does. Are they are they part of U of P? No, they're not. They're okay. an independent center. Okay. Uh, they're funded by grants from the government. They're okay. funded by industry, actually, as well. It gives them money to basically to get first look at their results. I don't think they ever get proprietary ownership of the results, but they can get you know first look at the results. This is industrial taste research, it's called. Yes. So they're funded by you know some of the big big food companies and people like that as well. Now, what's, what's, what's this concept I was reading about? Because it's kind of fascinating. And I guess it has to do more with mouthfeel. But I think it might have been in reference to the guy in Berkeley, Sobel, but I'm not sure because my notes are all over the place. But I just have in quotes, fat taste. The ability, the perception, the pleasure we get out of fat, the reason we're right. kind of attracted. What is so, that? Go there. Well, so... Um you know, I said we talked about five basic tastes, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. There's probably more, and which is a surprise in the first place, that something as simple as the basic tastes is also still not fully known. There's now pretty good evidence that we have a basic taste for fat, or actually for fatty acids, which are the breakdown products of fat. You'll get fatty acids in rancid cooking oil, you'll get fatty acids in aged cheeses, uh, a little bit in aged meat, and things like that. So mostly we hate the taste, except if the, just a little bit of something nasty in your food, in your, in your steak gives you some funkiness, or something nasty in your cheese makes it taste more interesting, if there's just a little bit of it. And that, so we probably do have that taste for fat, but when you say, oh, I love the taste of that you know, with whipped cream, dessert with whipped cream, what you're actually getting there is the mouthfeel from its, its sense of touch from the cream, the way it coats your tongue mm. and, and makes, you, makes your mouth feel good. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, I know you're a home cook, and I was a professional chef for years and now cover the food scene with uh, the PBS show I do, so I'm still in kitchens all the time. 
And I'm seeing less of it now, but it was certainly true that for about 15 to 18 years from the mid-90s till about five or six years ago, in a lot of the really good kitchens that I was in, butter was used as like the secret weapon, butter or olive oil, some form of lipid. And it was done either when you were sauteing a piece of protein, you were basting it in butter that was browning with herbs and garlic. Uh, If you were making sauces, you were finishing those sauces, everything from tomato sauces to meat-based glazes to to you name it, half, you know, tablespoon of butter at the end, it would thicken it, it would give it viscosity, it would just kind of give it that mm-hmm. another level of richness. Um, and of course, and a pinch of salt, because I mean, we, we know, I always, you know, used to tell people, and I used to do call-in radio, you know, you kind of have to take all the calls, you can't, you're doing it six days a week, and I would get, I would have a baking day, and people would call in with baking questions, and, I, and they would talk about salt, and I was like, salt is so important as a flavor amplifier. Every single baking recipe that there is, whether you're making brownies, or, or Mm-hmm. pie dough or genoise, everything, somewhere in there, there's a quarter teaspoon of salt. And if you leave that quarter teaspoon of salt out, the finished product, it, hasn't, it doesn't affect the rise, doesn't affect the lift, doesn't affect the crisp, the crunch, the, 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 uh, the dough whatsoever, right, the crumb. But that little teaspoon, that little quarter teaspoon of salt, is, if, if you leave it out of baked goods, your food tastes like nothing. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we knew that salt and fat did that. Um, so I guess that's what that fat thing is. Well, it, no. It, it's when when you put fat in, it's not because you like the taste of fat, because fat itself doesn't have you know, the the taste of a fatty acid is nasty. Uh, the reason that fat goes in is partly be, for the mouthfeel, but partly because a lot of the a lot of the molecules that we take that we smell that add flavor are fat soluble. Mm. So by adding more fat in the liquid in in the cooking liquid then you draw out some of these flavor molecules and make them more available. Well, that makes sense. So what, what is – I love dry-aged meats. I grew up old school, and to this yep. day still my favorite thing is to find prime – I mean, I know the restaurants that do it, places like Keen's in New York and the butcher's shops like Citarelle and LaBelle's, where it's, it's legitimately stamped prime, which is like less than 2% of all cattle on hoof, and then it's dry-aged. It's not politically correct meat because this is you know commodity meat that's been corn-finished, uh, raised on corn mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet there's something about that – like like 35, 45, 55-day dry-aged piece of meat that has that funky, like you're describing. Yep. So you're telling me that's, that is from the fatty acids? Partly. Okay. It's partly from that and partly from breakdown of proteins as well. So adding flavor, especially in meat, is all about breaking down what was there originally. You know, the meat is, is proteins and fats and some carbohydrates, and most of those aren't don't have a flavor of them on their own, which is why a piece of raw meat doesn't taste of all that much. So when you cook it, or, or when you age it, those big molecules break down into things that are small enough to become airborne and make it to your nose. Got it. Got and it. the longer you age it, the more of that stuff there is. Yeah, there's that sort of bacterial stuff that's going on because there's that big scarry tissue on the outside that you have to peel off. And you're also losing a lot of water weight, which is concentrating the flavor. Yep. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about – let's bore down and get kind of wonkish here, um, like man versus dog nose. Because there was just a great piece uh-huh. in the Times a while back about how dogs can smell 100,000 things or more – to our 10, you know, how they live with their nose, like they're, the way they're, the way their beak, the way their face is shaped has just given them this great nose. But let's talk yep. about what we have. So explain the difference between and, and how they are, ortho-nasal olfaction 
and yeah. retro nasal olfaction. So this is fascinating to me because I'm really into wine. The last three shows we've had on this show that I've had, all we did was have sommeliers, master sommeliers in here. Mm-hmm. We poured wine and taste it, and that's pretty much what I do every night of the week when I can when I'm out. So talk about sure. those two things, that phenomenon. Yeah, so it turns out there's two different ways to smell. One is what we usually call sniffing, and that's you know, bringing, bringing air in through your nose. Uh, what that's called orthonasal olfaction. But the other way is the other way that molecules can get to the sensory part of your nose is up the back, through your throat. And that's called retronasal olfaction. And that largely comes from food or wine that's held in your mouth. So that's why that's what you're getting when you take a, a sip of wine actually into your mouth and gurgle for a while, uh, swish it around, then you get those molecules coming up the back to the nasal epithelium. And that's something that that works much better in humans than probably any other species. If you think about what your dog's head is shaped like, right. it's got that long snout sticking out the front, and the, the sensory part of the nose, the nasal epith- olfactory epithelium, is pretty far forward. And so it's, it's really optimized for stuff coming in for sniffing. And Foods in the mouth actually have a kind of a long journey to get up to the olfactory epithelium. Whereas with us, we've got these really short faces and erect heads, uh, and the olfactory epithelium is right there at the top of the throat, at the back of the nasal cavity. And so it's very easy for stuff to get there via the retronasal, the back passage. And that probably means that humans are better at flavor than almost any other mammal. <laughs> I hope so. better than your dog. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I hope so. I remember, too, when I, when I was a kid uh, doing all my little wonky research at the CIA for whatever reason at the time, I just figured, well, it's true. I mean, the, the more you know can't hurt you, right? I remember coming across this I, this sort of, um, oh, I don't know how to describe it. You're much better at this than I am because you went to college. But the, the, the cribiform process or the cribiform foramina, which is part of the inner structure of the nose, and it's kind of how we collect data and deliver it to the brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's a perforated part of the skull, and the olfactory nerves pass through it. Right. So it, it all it is is it's a it's a, a screen, I guess, that lets the nerves in. I mean the 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 part of I mean your the sense of smell is the only place where the brain connects practically directly to the outside world, which is remarkable. As as faster yeah. faster than your eyesight is. Oh, yeah, much. Right? It's a whole lot less processing in the brain before... Right, like we react to smells. It's almost instantaneous, nose to brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, which is really cool. And that's probably part of the reason for the Proust effect, why why smelling something can bring back memories yes. uh, and all of that. It, it's wired straight to emotion and and only later to the higher cognitive parts of the brain. Now, when you were at um, in Philadelphia at Monell... Um, you were talking, and oh, I think it was there. It might have been somewhere else where they did like a, a it's kind of a diagram of your tongue, and concluded you had the potential to be a super taster because these people exist. Describe what that phenomenon is, and who well, they are, and what it is. Because yeah, it's it, funny. It's, it's almost as it's funny. funny. Because you'd, you'd think they'd be these great gourmands and these fine chefs, and they're eating all this variety of foods. And it turns out that the people that actually sort of qualify based on density of taste buds or whatever you're going to tell me actually tend to eat bland diets, which I could not right. figure out why that is. Explain this to me. Well, it, uh, so a super taster, it's, it's an unfortunate word, I think, 
because it makes people think that they're that it's a wonderful superpower kind of thing. But what it really means is just a person who's exceptionally sensitive to uh, oral sensations. They have a lot more taste buds. Uh, that makes them more sensitive to bitter, to sweet usually, to burning of pepper, uh, all of those sorts of things. And often what that means is because you're so sensitive to it, stuff is just too intense, and super tasters often eat pretty bland, narrow diets. Uh, not always. Uh, you know, as, as you said, it looks like I probably do qualify as a super taster based on the number of taste buds that I've got. And I, I like my hop, my beer's really hoppy. I love the bitter greens, uh, you know, the whole works. And it's just, it's a, it's a matter of learning. Yeah. We learn to, we learn to like stuff that's associated with pleasant experiences. Yeah. Uh, we learn to like the nasty bitter coffee because it gives us a nice wake up jolt. And all of a sudden, those, horrid flavors. I mean, everybody remembers their first taste of coffee, right? It, it wasn't wonderful the first time you drank it. And, and we learned to like it because it comes with good things. Uh, the person who tested me at Monel uh, turns out to be extremely sensitive to the bitter of quinine, which is in tonic water, and yet gin and tonic is her favorite drink. She says, yes, absolutely, I taste it as intensely bitter, but I love it. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, so kind of back to wines again. So as a wine taster and a wine lover and uh, with no training whatsoever, but just purely anecdotal, I drink wine, I taste wine, I'm a chef, so I'm really, my nose is always in the glass and I'm watching the evolution of wine over the course of a meal, how different wines react to the food. But it's clear that, that the sommelier friends that I have that are good spent a lot of time studying the structure of wine in their mouth, the weight of the wine in the mouth, the mouthfeel of the wine where you're getting a fair amount of determinants, but also the ability and the vocabulary to sort of uh, exercise their olfactory neural pathways. It's almost like if you can imagine the job of a SOM or a beverage director at a top New York restaurant, you have – Salesmen coming in all day long, salesmen and women coming in all day long, and you, you could be tasting 70, 100, 120 wines a day, every day, and you just develop like, like a guy that lifts weights, or a girl, you just develop the, the muscles to do it. Is that, am I imagining that, or can you actually develop those olfactory neural pathways? What you're really developing, I think, for the most part, is the vocabulary. You're, you're developing the ability to access the vocabulary. Because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I couldn't ever be a really good wine taster. I could, I, there's no way I can pick out things like, oh, is that a grapefruit note in the wine? Do I get, you know, is that clove? Uh, I, do, I just don't get that. But what I always tell people is, if you can tell the difference between one glass of wine and another, if you can tell that they are different, then you've got the perceptual ability. All you need is the vocabulary, and that just comes with practice. Mm. So I think what the sommelier friends are really training is access to the vocabulary. They're learning to attach the word clove to this particular sensation. You probably have the sensation, too. I probably have the sensation, too. But I don't have the word. I don't have the access to the word. So I carry around a, a crib sheet now because it's way easier to pick out, uh, to pick out flavors. It, 
to pick out the right one from a list than it is to come up with the word on itself on your own. Well, I'll give you that. So one of the one again, the name of the book here is Flavor: The Science of Our Most Neglected Sense. You spend a fair amount of time, and one of the things that always kind of horrifies me this whole chem, this whole business of um, in in the in flavor industry really begins in the nineteen fifties with with the gas chronography, um, yep. and so and now you've got these big companies like. Uh, Jovedan, how do you pronounce it? Jivodan? Jivodan. which is the biggest flavor company. Uh, you also have Fermentic, uh, International Flavors and Fragrances, and Simrise. Tell us what they do, because it, it's crazy. It's, um, <laughs> well, you tell us what they do. I'll shut up. Sure. Just about everything that you eat, the, every processed food. Processed food, Not yeah. a fruit or a vegetable or beer or wine or meat has something from a flavor house in it. From, from one of these industrial flavor companies. Every, you know, if you drink a Snapple, that flavor has been very carefully concocted. The special sauce on McDonald's Big Macs has been very carefully concocted uh, to get exactly the right balance of flavor. Uh, you know, chicken soup uh, has had, you know, if you read the ingredients of, on almost any processed food, you'll find in there somewhere, natural flavors or artificial flavors. Yeah. And that's what comes from these companies. So, and you had the story about root beer. Root beer used to be made with sassafras, a birch beer, root beer, sassafras. Then right. they found out that the one of the elements of sassafras was actually carcinogenic, so we have to take the sassafras out, and they said, okay, so now we'll just kind of have a top note. It's like the same way they do perfume. A top note, a middle note, some base notes. We'll construct yep. this artificially, and that's exactly what they've been doing with root beer for the last 40 years. Right. Yeah, one of the really striking demonstrations is, you know, uh, root beer, the, the smell of root beer can be manufactured from its, its oil of wintergreen, like wintergreen lifesavers, and anise, and vanilla. And, you know, they take, they take little pieces of, of filter paper and dip them into those pure right. compounds. Right. Oh, yeah, that's wintergreen. Oh, yeah, that's anise. And then you put the three together, and oh, it's root beer. It's like truffle it's like oil magic. So it's, I'd never, I'd never noticed that before. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's like truffle oil drives me nuts in restaurants. I can't stand the smell of it, and you know, and a lot of chefs have used it. A lot of high end chefs use it, and it's just, it's a chemical, a chemical extract. It's an oil, it's some kind of neutral oil, whatever. The, it doesn't matter what it is. But they've, uh, you know, isolated a couple of the phenolic compounds that right. like truffles smell yeah. like, ma- manufacture them chemically, and just boom, add it, add them, and that's it. And it works okay. It's not. It's not. It's not like a real truffle, but it's pretty good. No, people love it. I know people. Trust me. I, I eat at New York restaurants all the time. I. I am very. I can't stand it. And I could as, as those plates go by my nose, I'm just like, oh, truffle oil, truffle oil. That's so gross. But anyway, that's just me. Anyway, we could go on forever. It's a great book, um, Bob Holmes. Thanks for coming on the show today. The name of the book is Flavor. The Science of Our Most Neglected Sense. It runs in length, what is it, 300, 200, 200 and some odd pages. But it's, if you're into food, you should really read it because it's really interesting. Um, I, I found it endlessly interesting how we taste, the physiology of taste, the chemistry behind taste, with tons of good anecdotes that we didn't get into. Again, about these flavor companies and you know how you make chicken McNuggets. It's just great. It's a, a great book. Thanks for bringing that book out to us, Bob. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Stay where you are. My next guest is going to be on in a minute, Ben Goldfarb. Right after this quick break, we'll have Ben in the studio here out in Bushwick. Stay tuned. No more 
Hey folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome. Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I recommend you try it as well. All right, we're back, folks. Back, back, back. Hey, Food Talks the Show. This is a fun one. Ben Goldfarber's in the studio with me. He's based in New Haven, but I hey, used to live in Brooklyn, for crying out loud. He was a Roberta's customer. Years ago, um, he's a reporter for the Food and Environment Reporting Network. I get their emails all the time. They're also known as Fern. Easier to pronounce that. Um, and this was a story that he produced in collaboration with Fern and the publication Mother Jones, which is an independent nonprofit. New organization, they all are. Okay, so there's no point of view here except just good reporting. Now, Anyone that knows me or is listening to me on the radio at WOR here knows that I have kind of two lives. I live in Manhattan, and I also weekend in Cape May, New Jersey, and spend all my summers down there. And way back in the day, I had a restaurant down there, which is how I ended up there, mostly by accident. Um, Cape May is the third largest port on the East Coast in terms of dollars for landings. It's a big fisheries. Cape May, Wildwood Atlantic City is huge if you want clams, if you want flatfish. I know lots of families who have generationally made a living off of those boats, kids that become captains, grandkids that become captains, daughters that become captains. Um, it's a tough life. They're flinty people, um, but I have so much respect for them. They're really the farmers of the sea, and it's a very it's a tough thing that they do. And they also do it under the stress these days of the American fisheries, which is American waters off of all our coasts out to 200 miles, is the most regulated fisheries on planet Earth. Uh, it's a combination of NOAA. NOAA, the National Oceanographic, blah, 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 them, as well as local fisheries organizations and regional fisheries organizations that have said, you know, we, we realize now, now that we've gotten past the 80s and the 90s, that we have a problem with biomass. Uh, and cod is a great example, and that's what this story is about. So there's always this tension between regulating the amount of ground fish we can catch or scallops we can catch or clams. Actually, clams aren't an issue because they seem to be fine. But pretty much every industry I know, there's that tension between when the season opens, when it closes, and I, on the West Coast, Noah's on a lot of fishing boats. They actually have a Noah guy or girl recording. Um, with the budgetary cuts we've seen with the sequester years back, you're seeing less and less than that. On the East Coast, it's up to the captains to report and, and the um, distributors to report. So here's what the story's about. The name of the story was called The Codfather. And it's about this character, Carlos Rafael, who starts his life in the Azores, I believe, comes to New Bedford early. Yeah. You New tell Bedford. the story. I mean, it, it kind of is Horatio Alger meets I don't know who. But it, he, Machiavelli was, <laughs> Machiavelli was your line. So, and, so, Ben, you tell the story. He comes to, I mean, he really starts at the bottom as a 17, 18-year-old kid 
working at a processing plant. Yeah, you know, if you've seen Scarface, Carlos Rafael is like the Tony Montana of, of fish, and that's Al Pacino's character. And right. he, he, he comes as a 14-year-old, starts at a sausage-making plant, gets a job at a fish processing factory, buys his own his own processing plant, buys a boat, buys another boat, and, you know, by 2000 or so, he is probably the most powerful fisherman in the country. Um, he has this whole fleet of 40 boats. Um, he owns his own processing plant. He's a fully vertically integrated right. operation. Right. Uh, and he also, he has some some dealings with the law. You know, he goes to prison for He for has tax that 890-pound tuna that ends up coming off of one of his boats. It's not a tuna boat, dude. Right. Because those things are worth a lot of money. Yeah. So he gets yeah. busted for that. He does some time. And then he even, he's like cocky. He says to the guys like, your job's to catch me. Well, that's that's the kind of the amazing thing is that every every fisherman I talked to in New Bedford had some incredible story about being screwed by the Codfather. You know, one of the things about his character, it seems, is that he just loved he just loved telling people how he was screwing them over. You know, it was for him. It was that was almost part of the the fun of of owning this giant operation was beating everybody else at this game, including the regulators. I was about to say, this must be so, so fun. I didn't realize it. I, I kind of, well, I'm not going to talk about our current state of politics, but um, in terms of character being the story all the way through. But so he was even that way with his competitors coming up. Just this cocky dude. Absolutely. His undoing is he decides at the age of 64 to sell his business. Right. Selling business is never easy because how do you evaluate a business? You know, it, I, oh, yes, there's cash. Yes, there's inventory. Yes, there's – but what is it really worth? Show me the books. And these supposed Russian guys come in with an investor and there are IRS plants. This is all like undercover stuff. And right off the bat, he's bragging to them about it. It's worth $165 million. You know why? Reached underneath his desk, pulls out an envelope – just stuffed with cash. <laughs> this guy can't right. resist himself. No, it's it's amazing. It seems like within five minutes of the IRS showing up, he's already divulging <laughs> the entire fraud that he's been operating for a year, which he called the, the dance was what he referred to but as his. Let's go back operation. to his rise. Do we know? Like, was he was he playing by the rules? Was he just a really good, aggressive, hardworking fisherman or a captain with a bunch of boats early on, or was right from the get go this guy milking the system? Well, one of the things that he told the undercover IRS agents was that was that he'd been doing the dance, which is his his fraud for thirty years. So, so I think that beginning. I think that from the get go he was he was um, operating illegally. But he you know, but he was also certainly a very shrewd businessman, and a lot of a lot of fishermen really admired the guy, you know, because he was you alluded to kind of the challenging regulatory environment, yeah. and he was the guy who was making it work. You know, he was sort of a local hero in a lot of ways, and he employed a lot of people on his boat. So he was this sort of this uh, very ambiguous character, you know, where, where there are certainly fishermen who uh, idolized the guy and, and others who'd been screwed by him who, who hated him. <laughs> well, explain this part to me. So one of his undoings as they all began, this kind of, this is like a house of cards that happened pretty quickly. And meanwhile, this is like fresh news because he was supposed to go on trial like a week ago. Now it's been suspended till the 30th. Yes, yeah, so the trial was originally in January. It keeps right. getting pushed back. Right. Right. Um, and he actually, he, so he has pled guilty. He's and, pled guilty for this. He's pled guilty, um, but he hasn't been sentenced yet. So he's scheduled to uh, appear before a judge in Boston on March 30th. So a week from today. Just for the sentencing. So one of the things was misreporting. And I read, read this number and I just like my jaw dropped. 814,800 pounds of fish that he caught as cod. And call them haddock. 
Right. So kind of the, the amazing loophole in the whole regulatory system is the way that it's supposed to work is the, the fishing boats come back to shore and they, and they tell NOAA, the federal government, right. how much they've caught and what species they've caught. And then the, the seafood processing plants, the dealerships, um, they have their own reports that they, they submit about how much they got from the boats. And then NOAA uses those two sets of reports to corroborate each other. But obviously, if you're a vertically integrated operation, it's pretty freaking easy to make those two sets of reports line up. Um, so he was just, you know, falsifying these reports on a truly massive scale, basically catching more valuable fish, calling them less valuable right. fish, and then selling them under the table to a guy in New York for a lot of money. Who's still in business. Who's, who is still in business, <laughs> yeah, and who has not been charged. Who, I know. Connection to this apparently case. he's just like, yeah, it's cool with me. And, and haddock and cod, just to be fair, haddock, cod, ling are sort of similar fish in a similar family. They're big, they're white, they're North Atlantic, they're flaky. Um, sometimes right. I can't tell the difference looking at them if they've been filleted out. You know, a small cod looks like a big haddock. I mean, I can't tell the difference, totally. except the price point. Right. And the... If if you don't mind going on, I don't know if this is your if this is a strength, but you know, cod was the New England fisheries were built on the backs or on the sails of the Portuguese. Portuguese were great sailors, great fishermen. I've been to Portugal a bunch of a few times. Um, love the country, and it's ironic that the national fish of Portugal is cod, and yet it's not native to their waters. So the Portuguese initially began to go north into northern Europe, into the English waters, and the Norwegian waters, and the Scottish waters. And then, then they just began to, they were kind of following cod right. up across the North Atlantic, and really were fishing the New England fisheries, drying that cod and bringing it back to Portugal hundreds of years ago, and, and established the towns of New Bedford and Gloucester. So to this day, we've got Portuguese families that can trace their roots back Eight, nine generations yeah. to fishermen. The problem became evident, I'm guessing, in the 80s into the 90s, that this enormous biomass of cod that historically existed, because there was no limits on fishing, the numbers that I've read, and you can't really, no one knows you could talk to old people and how, you know, they talk about dropping buckets in the water and pulling cod up in them. But right. we think that, uh, I mean, a reasonable estimate is the biomass has been reduced by 90%. I think it's more than that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that we're down to 3% of historic biomass. So that means f for every three cod fishing out, swimming out there now, there used to be 97 more. Right. It was that thick. We've decimated them. So... What we're trying to do now is manage the small biomass that we have by opening and closing catches with these regulations. So there's still cod. They're still going to make baby cod. We're still going to be eating cod. But we're just going to have to limit what we're catching because we're really down to, like, single-digit biomass numbers. Yeah. You know, and, and, the, and the, the history of regulations in New England goes, goes back even to the 1970s, you know, and that was when you saw these gigantic industrial trawlers from Japan, from Spain, from Russia. All, all of our waters. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Three, you know, within three miles of, of shore. Um, and, you know, in, in 1976, they, you know, the, the government basically, right, exactly, the Nixon stevens Act. Right. Pushed pushed those boats two hundred right. miles um, offshore, and that was really the beginning of fisheries regulation in, in New England and, and the country. Um, but you know, since then, it's certainly 
you know, the, the last 40 years has been an effort to just get it right, right? It's, I mean, regulating fisheries is so, so complicated because it's basically impossible to know what is even down there, right. you so, know? Right, correct, right? Because as a guy that loves fishermen, it's dark. They're fishing deep off the waters. They're, and every, I mean, is it, is it long line? Is it pursane? Or is it scallops where they drop that, like, chain metal down and bring them up off the sky? I yeah. mean, and, and the fishermen tend to know more about it than anybody does because this is what the hell they do for a living. Sure. Did you get to meet this guy, Carlos? No, I didn't. So just, just so what brought him on your radar? What brought the story on your radar? Well, I've I've been covering fisheries for a while, and yeah, I, okay. yeah, yeah, and I, I did a I did a story about um about the New England ground fisheries uh, in 2011 or 2012, right when this new system um, called catch shares was yeah, coming into place. Yeah, talk about that. This is interesting. It, it exists sure. elsewhere. I've read about it down in, in the in, in down south in the Gulf of Mexico. It exists, and it's kind of. I mean, like, even, like, in Cape May, I know that in order to harvest scallops, you have to have permits for certain tonnage. Right. And those permits are kind of controlled by just a few guys that are actually really successful, who actually own the boats and have vertically integrated systems, too. Danny Cohen and Keith Laudeman. Um But talk about how the catch share thing works. Yeah, so catch and the good news and the bad news. Sure, yeah. So this is sort of the new wave that's that's been sweeping the world's fisheries, really, for, for about 20 years, uh, maybe 30 years. Um, and basically, so, so the way that, that fisheries were historically regulated, there's sort of the, the idea of an open season, right? So for, you know, from April 15th to May 15th, you can go out there and catch as much fish as you want, and then the season is closed. And there are a lot of problems with that idea. I mean, the, the biggest problem is that it's really dangerous, you know, because you have to you have to go catch your fish in this very narrow window. Right. And if there's if it's stormy, right. you know, if the, if the weather is bad, you, you know, you're fishing for 24 hours a day trying to catch as much as you can. Um, you know, a lot of people died during the what, what scientists call the race for fish. And it's kind of uneconomical too, right? Because everybody is landing their fish in this same really narrow window, so the market is glutted. Prices are really low. It's bad, bad for fishermen and, and bad for fish. So what catch shares does is it, is it, it sort of flips the way that fish is regulated. So it basically sets a total allowable catch. That's kind of the pie, right? So so this year, all the fishermen in New England can catch you know a hundred thousand tons of cod, making that number right. Up. But sure, you know, and, and then and then Michael, you know, you can catch. 10,000 tons and Ben you can catch 5,000 tons you know and you can you can buy and sell and trade your slice of the pie it basically turns this once common pool of, of fish into private property which is kind like everything with the law it cuts both ways so it ends up in the gulf I forget what the statistic was I wrote it down somewhere that where are my numbers here come on oh Catch shares in the Gulf of Mexico. Fifty-five sea lords, you refer to them as, right. own the rights to seventy-five percent of all red snapper. Right, and there are five hundred guys who are sort of competing over what's left. So it's tough for the small guys, and it even right. incentivizes some people to say, "Hey, I'll sell you my shares. I'm not even going out anymore. I'm not even going to have a right. boat anymore." I'm going to be golfing in Florida off the money that I've sold my shares to you with, but I'm not really a fisherman anymore. That exists too. So it's this kind of weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, and the thing that's tough about fishing is that obviously it's a very capital intensive business, right? Yeah. You have to buy the ice, you have to buy the gas, you have to pay your crew. Yeah. So you have to achieve a certain economy of scale to make it worth your while to go catch fish. So if you have a small slice of the pie, the incentive is to sell that out to a fisherman with more capital, which is really how Carlos Rafael, the codfather, amassed so much of his fishing power, right? I mean, so in 2010, this catch share system comes to New England um, and, you know, he was allocated about 9% of the total allowable catch. But within three years, he's landing more than a quarter of the of the ground fish revenue in New England. So he's he's massively 
concentrated the the fishing power. How did he do it? You know, a lot a lot of fishermen um, were eager to sell out. Right, they're you know they're they're um, they're at retirement age. Right, fishermen all over the country are getting older. It's harder for young guys to come into the business. So a lot of guys got their slice and said, "Hey, I'm I'm cashing out." Um, you know, there's 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 certainly people who are willing to cash out, and then others. Uh, yeah, you know, who, who who didn't want to, but basically had no choice because their slice was so small. You had a statistic in here in New Bedford. So we're talking about New Bedford ground fish. In 1996, there were 1,200 commercial boats. Fast forward to 2013, that number went from 1,200 to 317. Yeah, it's this really dramatic consolidation of, of the industry. And just boats that are just rusting in the docks that people have walked away from. Are, are you seeing that? What do you think, aside from this article, and since you're covering fisheries, what's your sense generationally of moving forward of New Bedford, Gloucester, Cape May? I mean, all these towns that have historically been supported as fisheries, will it just be a few big guys? Are there, is there young blood coming in? Is there hope? Are there new species that we're thinking about? You know, like, why don't we eat more dogfish? Why don't we eat bloody, you know, whatever, sand sharks? Because we're really a funny species, American consumers. We eat shrimp, we eat tuna, we eat salmon. That's I mean, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Those tilapia, maybe. Oh, and fuck yeah. That, yeah. Shit, I haven't <laughs> mentioned that word, but Garbage, basically yeah. 90% of what we're eating are three bloody species. And of course, salmon is, if it's coming from Alaska, it's farm-raised. Right. Um, so what, 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 what's your sense of, since you're in these communities and you're talking to the guys, the girls, the families, is, is there a bright spot? Yeah. So, you know, last year I, I did a feature about dogfish um, for, for right. Boston Magazine. And, and dogfish is, it's a small shark, uh, as, as you know. And it's, you know, it's another white flaky fish. It's not quite as, it doesn't quite have the flake of cod, you know, texturally. It's not quite as good, but it's, it's pretty tasty. It's, dude, I've cut it, and keep going. I, I mean, I eat, it's good fish, yeah. and it's fresh, and it's abundant, and it's sustainable, it's, and they're all over the goddamn meat. It's everywhere. so abundant. Right. So, yeah. so one of the, so just, Backing up for a second, one of the really amazing things about New England right now is that the Gulf of Maine, which is the big body of water from Cape Cod to Canada, is warming. warming. Yeah, it's warming faster than 99% of the ocean of the ocean water on Earth. Uh, and what's that? And what that's doing is it, it's basically it's basically driving cod further and further north. Right. So cod was was always overfished. I mean, that's really the problem. But climate change is making it harder for cod to recover. Uh, and in cod's place, you know, you've got you've got other species like black sea bass and dogfish that are moving in like crazy. So all of these fishermen now are faced with these, you know, all they catch is, is dogfish in some places, especially in Cape Cod. So you know they have to they have to find a, a market for this this stuff. Um, but that's really challenging because as as you said, you know. American consumers are only accustomed to a handful of species. We're not going to eat some weird shark, right? That's that's un-American. Um, so it's it's been really hard for these guys to find a market for this product. And this, so this this story that I wrote about about these dog fishermen, you know, they've they're developing local markets. They have you know they have local restaurants in Chatham that are using dogfish in burritos, right? You know, but but those local restaurants are are they're using thirty pounds of dogfish a week. These guys are catching four thousand pounds a day. You know, and it's just really hard for them to to find outlets for the incredible dogfish biomass they're catching. So this so the solution is really finding institutional buyers. You know, college cafeterias, hospitals, prisons, the military. You know, who's going to buy four thousand pounds of dogfish a day, unless we can get those those big buyers buying up dogfish? You know, it's going to be really like, hard for to survive. Were you in a cafeteria at like Penn State or something? You're talking about I don't I, I read a piece like that. They were talking about like how these college cafeterias were really 
kind of on the forefront because the chefs and the buyers are smart too. Like, what can we buy that's good, that's cheap, that's delicious, that's, that's sustainable? And you're seeing like you're seeing it that because back in the day when I was in college, you, like you didn't eat in the cafeteria, but now they and now college, you know, now you're spending a quarter million dollars for your useless bachelor's degrees. You can eat well <laughs> in most colleges, so sure. so that has become an avenue. Increasingly, yeah, but it's it's still not nearly at the scale that these that these guys need. You know, there I mean, there are there are just a handful of fishermen who are making a living off off dogfish right now. And you know, as as you said, twenty years ago there were twelve hundred fishermen making a living off cod and haddock and flounder and other ground fish. Well, at least black bass is delicious and people pay for it. Because that that's, that's I think another thing with the country is we're just going to have to. I noticed because again, I live here and I live in Cape May. And fish is always expensive in Manhattan, and once I got used to Cape May, like the freshness of the fish down there, I like really couldn't buy fish up here. I'm, like just look at it. just look at it. I'm, I'm a chef. I'm just like, no, no. Uh, what's that? No. So you're looking at north of twenty dollars a pound for a lot of good seafood up here now. Um, scallops jumped a ton in the last, I guess, five or six years ago. I think it goes back to that that radioactive thing in Japan, that Fukushima thing. For some reason, it was around that time that destroyed scallop beds in the Far East. So mm. the demand for Atlantic scallops, North Atlantic scallops, skyrocketed. Uh, now down in Cape May, I mean, I, I buy them, I love them, but they're really protein-dense. I don't eat that many. It's a funny kind of protein. Do you find that too with scallops? You can't eat a lot of them? Um, yeah, you know, four or five, and I'm kind of tapped out, Right, I but think. you can yeah. eat flounder. Like, I can eat flounder till uh, like, forever. They're like, pretty rich. Yeah, yeah scallops, scallops are really weird, but I, I'm paying 15 bucks a pound retail in Cape May, Cape May for scallops. Um, and I was talking to the guy, Keith Laudem, a friend of mine, owns uh, Cold Spring Fisheries and a restaurant and the fish market and a huge wholesale wing. And I said, when, Keith, when did flounder get to be $13 a pound? And he says, this was the past year. He said, that's what, it's so scarce now, that's what we're paying for it. We're just going to have to get used to paying more for good, clean protein. Yeah. And I think we'll have, we'll have to diversify the fish that we eat, obviously. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that we've, we've, gotten, we've gotten used to the idea of diversity in produce, right? You know, we all, we all know that there are 10 different kinds of lettuce, you yeah, know? People are eating kale now. I, mean, I, grew up right, in, exactly. I grew up in black neighborhoods, like, we eat kale and collard greens when I was a kid, and I'm like... What, so what the way people start eating kale? Right, like, so, kale's the shit now. So what is so what is the kale of fish exactly? You know, that's <laughs> that's fish. what we need. It, it must be. It has to be dogfish. So so you know we have to get used to the idea of eating what is seasonal, what is local, what is abundant. You know, and we've gotten used to that idea in when it comes to buying produce at farmers markets. But fisheries are is still ten to twenty years behind the the produce movement. And I'm guessing it kind of has to come through people like you that are doing writing and from chefs who tend to lead the way in terms of trends. If people are going to restaurants and they're saying skate on the menu and dogfish on the menu right. and stuff that's around the sustainable. I mean, I, I remember when I used to fish in Cape May, I'm not a very good fisherman. I, I would take home oyster crackers, little tiny little bottom dwelling hideous things, but they were delicious. I, I, I remember like buying squid to cook in my house and having like the guys at the other side of the counter say, you buying this for bait? I'm like, no man, squid's delicious. What's totally. Yeah. Right? And, and that's another Northeast. I mean, we sell, what's the statistic in America? We, 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 we I think we sell ninety percent of the fish that we catch overseas, right? And then we and then we import, import you know eighty percent of the fish that we eat, or which something is like, like tilapia, that. farmed shrimp from the right. like this junk fish, right? So it's totally backwards, you know. But I think I think you're right. I mean, I, th I think that one good example of of the dynamic that you're describing is monkfish. You know, monkfish is this it's this hideous creature yeah. with this crazy gaping mouth full of teeth. You know, people were disgusted by it, and then you know, and then chefs basically figured out it was delicious, and and now there's a huge monkfish market, and that's what a lot of guys are fishing for now in the Northeast is monkfish and and skates. You know, because those are two sort of historically unloved species that were 
redeemed by the culinary community. Yeah, skate to me is crazy. That's like one of my favorites. Like the most, one of the most delicious fish. So oh, easy yeah. to cook. Tastes like a minute or two. It's oh man, it's, it could go on and on. And, and you know, black sea bass. It's funny you mention that because having been in New Yorker for a while, one of the one of the seminal restaurants, uh, Mon, uh, yeah, Mondrachet, when it first opened, Drew Neporn. David Boulay was the original chef in that kitchen, and he had a dish on the menu, black bass en barigoule, which is a southern French preparation. It's a broth, a nage with artichokes and vegetables. Really clean, really nice. But I remember, like, black bass was kind of an outlier fish back then, and I was a chef back then, and I remember the price of black bass then was a dollar a pound. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah. You know, and, and the amazing thing is that, that, I mean, that's a fish that you, that you would catch in, in Cape May, you know, that, that is now up in, in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Because of the warming of the because waters. Of the, right, exactly. So, you know, so the, the markets for black bass that exist in the mid-Atlantic states are still being developed, really, in New England. And then there's, oh, we don't, why don't we get into it? Then there's the huge tug of war between sport fisheries and commercial fisheries that drives me nuts. Striped bass is like a perfect example. Right. Like in, and that varies from state to state. In the state of New Jersey, you cannot buy or sell striped bass commercially. It's not a fish market fish. And yet, I live in Cape May, and there's boats going out all summer long, party boats, private charters, captains. Although we have a catch limit, which is has to be 28 inches or bigger, and you're allowed one plus one more that's larger per person on the boat. I mean, there's no one out there enforcing that stuff either. Right. So commercial fisheries don't have access to a fish that sport fishermen do, which drives you nuts. But then you talk to like the politicians, and they're like, do you know how much sport fisheries is worth the state of New Jersey? Those rich guys to come down for two months contribute a shit ton of money. We don't care about commercial fisheries, yeah. which is nuts. Yeah. So what's going to happen to your boy? What's going to happen to the, to the Codfather? What do you think? Well, he's, I mean, he, he's guilty. He's like they have him. Like, like, like you said, like four minutes into him selling his business, he already spills the beans to the IRS guys who are undercover as to what he does, how he does it. Um Jail time? I mean, he's got money in Portugal. I mean, he's 64 years old. What do you think is going to happen? I know I th- you're not a lawyer. Yeah, I think, I think he's seeing jail time. But, I, but I th- I, as I talked about in the article, you know, I think that what is even more important that would ha- than what happens to Carlos Rafael himself is what happens to his property, right? His fishing permits you're and right. the quota right. that he owns. Right. Um, and that, you know, he, I mean, he owns a huge slice of the fishery. And that potentially is is really valuable for the fishermen who have been kind of locked out of this industry. You know, the young guys who, who weren't grandfathered into the catch air system, the smaller boats who got the small slices of the pie. You know, so I think there I think there's gonna be this this huge tug of war over his over his quota and his that? permits. Do we, right, do we exactly. auction it off? Do we put it on the block in pieces? How do we do that? Yeah, How do or, we get that back into the market? You know, or do you do you just take it out of the system altogether and say you know, That's hey, let's it. let's just let this fishery recover even further. And I think that a lot of fishermen are afraid because because there have been other fisheries where, when something like this happened, you know, a a conservation group comes in and buys up a slice of the fishery and basically takes it out of circulation to help fish stocks recover. Um, and I think that I think that there are some fishermen who are afraid of that. You know, and then I mean, the big battle is going to be whether the, that fishing access stays in New Bedford um, as the New Bedford mayor wants it to. Or is it going to be available to all of the fishermen all over New England? You right. know, that was another part of the article that was scary to me too. You're right. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, scallops was a good story of fisheries working with NOAA. As scallop catches were dropping in the 80s and 90s, they began to realize they were catching immature scallops. That mm-hmm. they, you know, if you catch them before they breed, obviously you're not going to have good outcomes. So they raise the size of those rings on that like chainmail mesh that they drop. Right. So they're only harvesting mature scallops. And now, I mean, I think for the last 15 years, 55 million pounds of scallop are getting landed every year, year in and year out, with no issues in, in the Northeast fisheries. Yeah, you know, and another cool thing about the, about the scallop fishery is that, is that, so I was talking before about the catch share system and how right. that encourages the big players to get even bigger. You know, a lot of fisheries 
take pains to sort of limit that that capacity. You know, to, so so a lot of fisheries say, okay, you know, no fisherman can own more than one percent of the total allowable catch, um, or you know, we're going to set aside a portion for the small the small mm-hmm. boats or new or new fishermen. And in the case of the scallop fishery, there is that accumulation limit. There's a certain percentage that no fisherman can get bigger than. So I think that I think that that's a, a valuable lesson for the ground fishery, where there's that you know there is a limit now this time for the first for the first time, which is which is about 15 percent, but that's much higher than the scallop limit. So you know I think that if you're going to put catchers in a place, and again, catch shares have a lot of good benefits, but you know they also have to come with with limits that basically curtail how big an individual player can get. I think that's a really important lesson from from scallops. Great. Thanks for coming on. Nice to meet you. I mean, we have the same passion for it. I'm a huge fan of fishermen and fisherwomen. They, they're the farmers of the sea, folks. I mean, they are, what they do is you can't imagine the labor, how risky it is. Um, we have that. I don't want to go into the boats we've lost in Cape May and the horror stories, but it's, it's a, it's one of, I think it's the second most dangerous occupation there is uh, in America. And, and we should all be eating more fish. We should eat fish two, three days a week. And American fish, local fish, locally caught fish. Please. Dog fish. Dog fish. Yeah, no more tilapia. Fish. No more of that farm-rest salmon. Eat locally. Uh, ben Goldfarb is reporter for the Food and Environmental Net- Reporting Network, Fern, also known as Fern. You can find his piece in Mother Jones. We'll have a link to it here at our website. It's a great piece. Keep up your great work, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Folks, stay tuned. We'll be back next week doing something. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Real